0: Hello and welcome to the curator of Monocle Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It is indeed the last curator of the year. And for it, we have the best of 2023 from Monaco Radio. For this episode, we speak with Christopher Nolan.
1: It's a truth that the audience needs to hear in this kind of story, which is that mm. these scientists, whatever their individual brilliance and, and their facility in things that, that we can never understand or relate to,
0: Plus, we celebrate 50 years of hip-hop.
2: Sometimes when you don't understand a genre of music, or you don't listen to a genre of music, you don't see the inherent social and cultural value. It's just an expression of a human being's lived experience.
0: All that and much more here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this year, in fact, was dominated, at least cinema wise, by Barbenheimer. On Motocon Culture, Rob Bound was lucky enough to speak with a filmmaker at the helm of one half of that phenomenon, Christopher Nolan. As the film is undoubtedly an intimate portrait of its protagonist, J. Robert Oppenheimer, he asked Christopher Nolan if he viewed Oppenheimer as an unwilling competitor in the arms race.
3: We're in a
4: race against the Nazis it means
1: if the nazis have a bomb we have a 12-month head start 18 how could you possibly know that we've got one hope
4: all america's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here secret laboratory keep everyone there until it's done
5: let's go recruit some scientists
6: Congratulations on an absolutely wonderful film. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, Christopher, first. There is obviously such an antic energy at the centre of it, Mm. um, both in his character and what he achieves, such an unstoppable force and momentum. How quickly was that a central part of your sort of filmmaking rubric, if it was?
1: I think right from. Reading the specifics of his story. I mean, I knew about the key dramatic events of this incredible story, the Trinity Test, the way in which it changed the world forever. But coming to the book, which I've adapted, American Prometheus by Kybert and Martin Schoen, reading that, there was this incredible sense of suspense and momentum to so many different aspects of his life. There were so many things that happened to him as a young man that decades later, come back to haunt him, catch up with him in in that most sort of cinematic way. And so for me, I've never really wanted to tell a story of somebody's life in in some kind of traditional sense. I really wanted to just view the events of his life as an experience Mm -hmm. to be shared with the audience so that they could, I think, maybe come to some kind of understanding of him rather than judging him. And in that way, the momentum of it, I think, is very important because there are a lot of decisions being made in a very pressured environment you know, whether or not to push the button before the Trinity test, even knowing that there was this very small possibility that might destroy the entire world. (laughs) But so you have to feel that sense of momentum and pressure that's just pushing, pushing, pushing in a particular direction because that's what they're caught up in. And I I want to be caught up in that as well so as not to be dispassionate and looking Mm -hmm. at, hang on, why do they do this? Why do they do that? You want to really understand the the momentum of the moment they're in. And... It's a very human
6: drama, obviously in the in the wider scheme of things, but in his and his circle of friends, lovers and girlfriends, and and and, and, and all of that. Um, and I suppose it's an intimate portrait, in a way, of a person that's in often unwilling competitor in this in this arms race. Mm. You feel very much like you're on. I felt very much like the the story and your story, your telling of the story, was on his side in that. Mm. Did you feel that he was a kind of unwilling competitor in this
1: race? I don't I think unwilling Sometimes. is up for debate. I think it's I think it's ambiguous. I think that the man had tremendous ambition mm. and he had a tremendous sense of his own theatricality, his own drama, and how to use that. Uh, and I think those things come into play in his decision making in ways that are a little frightening when, <laughs> when thought of in the context of <laughs> of you know the global well being, if you want to say, and, and the ways in which it changed the world. But that's what's wonderfully evolving to me about his story. Reading the book, you know, I get to the moment where I realize that Los Alamos, this place that that lives in infamy, really. I mean, it's today still one of the key sites of uh, the mm-hmm. development of present day nuclear weapons. That was a place he liked to go camping with his brother. (laughs) And, you know, you first hear the name and you're like, it's that personal. And he says, you know, if I could find a way to combine physics in New Mexico, my life would be complete. You think, okay, this this desire, this idiosyncratic, you know, simple human feeling about things is going to change the world forever.
6: Yeah. Yes, it does feel like that. It feels like uh, if it happened in a British context the new forest would never be the same or something like that, right? <laughs> exactly. beware. Exactly, yeah, Cheltenham. Where, you where you spend your summer <laughs> holidays, exactly. And in that human sense, there's a, there's a sort of, it's quite a chamber piece. A lot of it happens in rooms in cocktail parties, in lecture theatres and in classrooms and things, mm. as much as that broad new town, which kind of Los Alamos becomes, I suppose. Yeah. What was, and obviously set against the, the vastness of the ambition of the project, and, and what it laid waste to, I suppose. You're quite sparing with the pyrotechnics in mm. this movie. And I wondered, again, a bit like my first question, how early that was written into your plan for the film to it's not a crash-bang-wallop situation that we find ourselves in, despite the largeness yeah. of
7: it.
1: Yeah. Well, scale and, and, you know, we talked about momentum, but, but mm. scale in, in cinema is a, is a hard thing to pin down. It's not just about the literal scale of the set you build or the the world you're trying to create. It's often about the humanity involved. Mm. And and we knew we needed and we got, you know, the the huge vistas of New Mexico in contrast with the people, you know, the the thunderous nature of the weather there and everything that that prefigures and so forth. Mm. But ultimately, a lot of the scale comes from the group of people who are assembled, the disparate points of view that come together Uh, the community of scientists, the military community, how they interact. And, uh, you know, very early on it was apparent to me that that having got Killian to play the lead, I now needed to people this world with a lot of extraordinary actors, you Mm. know, and we have Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, many others, but also a lot of fresher faces, young actors coming together to portray you know, it's Richard Feynman or Robert Serber. You know, these guys coming mm. together to get across a, a couple of interesting facts about this story. The average age of everyone at Los Alamos is about 28. The number of Americans involved in making the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, is about 600,000. So this was a, the ultimate sort of group effort. You know, the team at Los Alamos, which was thousands strong, Oppenheim was having to wrangle this, and we wanted to feel the scale of that problem. So I didn't write any... Composite characters, which is what people often do when they're adapting real life. I just wrote a lot of names and faces that that were going to come in and do their thing, and what I wanted to trust is that if we could cast them right and give everybody their own sort of unique energy, the audience would remember what they needed to remember. They wouldn't necessarily know people's names, but they'd know that, okay, that that guy is that bit of the story, that guy is that bit of the story. But you wanted to get this feeling of, tremendous scale to the personalities involved.
6: Well those personalities ring true and it it must be that is I guess yeah. those are the people that populate the film it is their hopes and fears and their idiosyncrasies as you say coming from the top down I suppose those frailties as well how, and as you mentioned, this comes from American Prometheus, the mm-hmm. Kai Bird and Martin, Martin Sherwin book. How easy, what, what sort of feat was it to write dialogue from a history book? Because there can't be much in that <laughs> book. And well, you, you, know, you, you, so you have to breathe life into those historical characters.
1: Well, the dialogue's a very sp- <clears throat> specific and interesting facet mm. of, of this experience for me as, as a filmmaker. Because... There are things in the book. A lot of it, as you say, is you know reported. Mm. Uh, but there are the occasional bits of dialogue that really stick with you from the book. And then the book points you to the transcripts. So when it came to the security hearings in 1954, I'm reading a 1,000 pages of transcripts, which, whilst they won't give you tone of voice or anything, it's kind of interesting. You have to interpret it kind of if you were going to, adapting a Shakespeare play or something. You have to <laughs> sort of interpret, you know, well, what, yeah. how do you say the line, as it were? But the lines themselves, oh, my God. I mean, the, the drama of these transcripts is just so far beyond anything that I would ever dare to put on paper. It's amazing uh, source material. I amazing suppose. source that, material. And yeah. so my job was to pick and choose, to edit, to take, i don't call them highlights because it's not that kind of story, but <laughs> the, the important parts of mm. these thousand pages. And really, I used the transcript. And so a lot of what the characters say in the film is verbatim. You tidy it up mm. so that it fits the sort of movie vernacular. Because we're not making a documentary. We're interpreting and no, making yeah. a dramatic feature. But um, I really tried to be guided by the transcripts because they were simply, they were just so dramatic. I mean, there are things that Oppenheimer says, some which I don't want to say because they're spoilers, or things that when you know, Kitty yeah. testifies, or, those things are taken you know, right from the transcript.
0: And I'll highlight from the foreign desk. Frozen, vast and remote, the Arctic has long been a region of relative peace and stability. But the idea of Arctic exceptionalism is on thin ice, largely due to Russia's war in Ukraine. This changing mood was palpable at the recent Arctic Circle Assembly held in October in Reykjavik. Monaco's Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk Team traveled to the Icelandic capital to meet with various Arctic leaders, including U.S. Senator for Alaska, Lisa Murkowski, who's been calling for greater military preparedness in the region. Andrew began by asking Senator Murkowski if hailing from and representing Alaska has given her a different viewpoint of Russia to the rest of the United States.
8: So many in even the rest of the United States have no appreciation of how proximate our neighbors are. From mainland to mainland, it's 57 miles. It is two miles between Little Diomede, Alaska, and Big Diomede, Russia. Two miles. And so I know that there's an oft-repeated phrase out there that I can see Russia from my house. Well, (laughs) Honestly, if you live in Little Diomede, you can, in fact, see Russia from your home. And so think about what that proximity means. It means that you have Alaskans who not only view those across the strait as their neighbors, but their family members. Mm. There was a period in time not too many years ago when we actually had what we called freedom flights. They were flights that were regularly... Regularly, like once a week, going from Nome, Alaska, over into Providenia to Magadan. These were an effort to reconnect families, to allow for that neighbor to neighbor relation culturally, a great deal of commonality in dance and tradition. And so when we think about it as Alaskans and the neighbor to the west there, it is not so. Far off, We have many Russian communities where families have come over and established themselves in communities that are somewhat insular with mm. Russian families, but there is a lot of connection. And so when war presents, when that wall really does rise in between our two countries, it takes on a different complexion in the state of Alaska than it might in other areas.
4: I assume when you said it, you weren't talking about Alaska specifically because this would be pretty hardcore revanchism, even by Vladimir Putin's standards. But you did say a while back that you were concerned that Vladimir Putin had, as you put it, one hand on Ukraine and the other on the Arctic. Do you think we're not taking seriously enough the possibility of actual Russian predations upon the Arctic?
8: Oh, I believe very much that Putin would like to see much greater Russian dominance in the Arctic. Mm. Now, geographically, they occupy a big space up there. We get that. But I think what he is seeking to do is to broaden that beyond that massive geography that he has. It's dominance in the waters. It is establishing a presence, a defense presence, an economic presence that says to the world— The Arctic is our domain. So, yes, I think very much that he looks at this and has greater ambitions – then perhaps most in the United States would think that he does. And I think that we should view that with some concern.
4: Obviously, partially as a consequence of Russia's assault upon Ukraine, the Arctic Circle has become much more well NATO-fied, I guess. Finland has joined, Sweden presumably will. Do you think that the Arctic also needs to become much more obviously militarized? I know your your Arctic Commitment Act, which you sponsored, does call for a permanent U.S. maritime presence in the Arctic. Do you mean specifically? specifically? specifically a U.S. naval presence in the
8: Arctic? Well, think about how much water we have in the U.S. Arctic that is pretty open. We have a wonderful Coast Guard. We appreciate all the assets, but in fairness, our coverage is very limited. And we have effectively no naval presence in the U.S. Arctic waters. We have no naval presence in Alaska. And it is something that we have pressed the Navy to review, to look at that specifically. We've done that through appropriations language. We've done it through private conversations. And so when I think about our Arctic capabilities, we have to look to that first line of defense, and that's in Alaska. And so whether it is air superiority, whether it is our preparedness from a Surveillance capacity with drones, but clearly with assets that help to cover our oceans around Alaska. We have the Arctic Ocean, we have the Bering Sea, we have the Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of Alaska there. We have a lot of territory with very little presence right now.
4: Would you imagine, though, that there might be some pushback against that? I mean, obviously, Russia would say that this is the United States deliberately escalating tensions, but that's what Russia says about everything. But are you worried that there would be a similar kind of pushback from your own allies and partners in the Arctic who have prided themselves for years on this being a very, very low stress, low tension neighborhood?
8: And we want to keep it low-stress, low-tension neighborhood. And I think the way that we can project and ensure that is to make sure that there's just a level of preparedness. Russia is doing far more to invest in their defense capabilities in the Arctic. And they're doing this at a time when they are looking for every bit of funding that they can to advance this awful war against Ukraine. But they are still trying to put their influence, well, it is their influence in their own region, but they're still trying to build up and enhance that military capacity. And think about this then. If you don't have the ability to make those investments yourselves, who might you turn to? And this is where we see them turning to China. And this is where we should all be concerned about this growing partnership in the Arctic between Russia and China. Russia has made very, very clear, we want to be the Arctic dominant country up here. Because of our geography and and our history, we want to and we shall be. And this is one area where historically, we haven't seen a lot of partnering between Russia and China. That's flipped. We're seeing them do exercises in the Gulf of Alaska, near Alaskan waters, the Russians and the Chinese together. You're hearing Statements coming from Putin about the cooperation with the Russian Coast Guard and the Chinese Coast Guard. I think they're looking to China for a little help with investment capital. How are they going to make sure that they have the strength and the capability to build and to then maintain some of this very, very, very expensive infrastructure in the far north? Well, you do it with different partners. Who are their partners? China.
0: You're listening to The Curator, o Monaco Radio, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now, 22 years ago, the world was transfixed by the impossible, appalling spectacle of the September 11th attacks in the U.S. A small group, however, were faced with the daunting task of formulating a response. The staff of U.S. President George W. Bush, one of the most iconic images that emerged from that day was of Andrew Card, famously the man who broke the news of a second plane striking the World Trade Center in New York City to President Bush during an appearance at the Emma E. Book. Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida.
5: Once I was told that a second plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center, I knew that I had to pass the test. Does the president need to know? Yes, the president needs to know. And I thought carefully about what I would say to him. He had been told that it appeared a small twin-engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers at the World Trade Center in New York City. That's what he was told before he went into the classroom. So I was then told that it wasn't a small twin-engine prop plane. It was a commercial jetliner. My mind flashed to the fear the passengers on the plane must have had. They had to know it was losing altitude. I don't know why that's where my mind went, but that's where it went. But that was only for a very short period of time because Deb Lauer, who was the acting national security advisor on the trip and the director of the White House Situation Room, came up to me and said, oh, my God, another plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center. I then thought of three initials, UBL, Osama bin Laden. I knew about al-Qaeda. I knew about the attacks in the World Trade Center in early 1993. And I knew that this was not a coincidence or an accident. And I did make a decision that the president needed to know. I decided that I would pass on two facts and make one editorial comment. And I would do nothing to invite a question or a dialogue with him because I knew that he was sitting in front of second graders. And I didn't want him to react in any way that would demonstrate either fear or angst. I wanted just to pass on the information and then then depart. I presumed a boom microphone was hanging over him, so I didn't want to have a conversation in front of everybody. And so I thought about what I would say to him believe it or not, I reflected on another moment in history when I was the acting chief of staff to his dad when he was president of the United States and went to Tokyo, Japan, and threw up on the Japanese prime minister. On that day, I decided I was going to be cool, calm, and collected and make sure that the president would be well served, but also make sure the world would be not alarmed. And so I thought it reflected on that moment. I did think of what I would say to the president. I walked in, and he did not turn around and look for me when I walked in. He didn't even know I'd entered the room. The teacher was conducting a dialogue between the students and the president. They were second grade students. And when the teacher told the students to take out their books, that meant the conversation was over. They were getting their books out to read with the president. And that's when I walked up to him and leaned over, and I said, a second plane hit the second tower, America is under attack. And that was all I said to him, I stood back from him so that he couldn't or wouldn't ask me a question. I was impressed with how he did react to what I said to him. He did nothing to generate fear in those students. He did nothing to demonstrate fear to the world that would have been to the satisfaction of the terrorists around the world. Instead, I think he contemplated his legitimate burden that he carries because of the oath that he took to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So I I was very impressed with how he reacted to what I said to him. I was pleased that he did not get up and demonstrate any fear, and he also did not come with me and leave the venue. It allowed me to go back into the holding room and say, get the FBI director on the phone, get a line open to the vice president, get a line open to the White House situation room, Dan Bartlett gets some remarks written for the president. He's going to have to go into a larger auditorium and speak to the guests that were there. And he can't do anything that is not truthful. He's got to be truthful with his words. Don't say anything. We do not know to be true. Then the president walked in after he had excused himself from the classroom. And the first thing he said to me when he opened the door and walked into the holding room was get the FBI director on the phone. We could say he's right here, Mr. President. But I, that day, decided my role was to make sure the president was not motivated by emotion, that he was using his own logic and sound thinking to address the challenges that he would have to address that day. So I purposely made sure the president was not surrounded by people who were overly emotional in how they were responding to the challenge of the day. Kept him cool, calm, and deliberate. And I tried to be an honest broker as he was challenged with many decisions. And I was with, very impressed with his thought process and his demonstration of commitment to keeping his oath and the brutally tough decisions that he had to make. Probably the toughest decision that I watched him acknowledge was he authorized our military to shoot down commercial airliners if they were not complying with FAA radio traffic. To land. And it was soon after that that Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania. And I admit that some of us wondered if one of our fighter jets had fired a missile at one of the commercial jetliners. So, but I watched the president make a tough decision about making sure that Putin was called and that he didn't do anything to overreact. And I also knew that he had empathy for the pilots that were flying in these jets that were protecting America because he had been an Air National Guard pilot. He said, I can't imagine getting the order to shoot down a commercial jetliner. But he gave that order and authorized it to be executed if he needed to be.
4: I want to come back to your your management of the rest of the day shortly, but just to go back to the moment where you told President Bush what had happened, it seems to me there's two things there. There's that the what you say and the how you say it. In terms of the what you say, did you rehearse any other lines? Were those the first things that popped into your head or were there other things you thought about and thought, no, that's too complicated, that's too emotive, that's too alarmist? How fast did you widow it
5: down to that? I winnowed it down pretty quickly. I didn't think that it would be appropriate for the Secret Service to come in and whisk the president away in front of the second graders and the press, because I thought that would have generated fear. The second thing is I didn't want the Secret Service to rush up and lift him up and take him away when others would be wondering if they were in danger too. So I did think about those things. I did not dwell on any of them. I just decided I would pass on this information hopefully let the president digest it and then get things ready for him to be able to make decisions and have them implemented and obviously leaving the emma e booker school that morning and going back to the airport in sarasota was a a harrowing trip the vehicle went very very fast we were in the president's limousine called the beast And I was on the phone back to DC. The president was on the phone and he was frustrated that he couldn't reach Secretary Rumsfeld, the secretary of defense. It turns out that's when the Pentagon had been hit. And so Secretary Rumsfeld was dealing with that. And then we got to Air Force One and Air Force One, the engines were already running on the plane, something that is a protocol no-no. They're not supposed to turn the engines on until the president's safely on the plane. When I heard the engines running, I said, Mark Tillman, the pilot, must really want to get out of here. And we ran up the gangplank, got on Air Force One almost before we could take our seat. The plane was rolling down the runway, getting ready to take off. And it took off almost vertically straight up, went up to a very high altitude, waiting for fighter jets to catch up to us. But my job was to make sure the president was cool, calm, and collected, and that people around him were not generating you know, emotions of fear we wanted him to be stable in his thinking and have his needs met in terms of being able to communicate with the white right people at the right time with the information that he wanted to action.
0: And on The Urbanist this year, we celebrated the fifth anniversary of hip-hop culture on episode 629 of The Urbanist. And we spoke with urban sound specialist Chen Shapiro, who joined us in studio to describe how the music genre has also served as a vehicle for economic growth and community development.
2: There's a lot of successful rappers who are kind of one man or woman economic development agencies. So Killer Mike is one example.
0: If you're a leader and you really mean something to your people, ain't you supposed to be in the community with your people? Ain't you supposed to be there? Like the only people I see in the community are rappers
2: involved with he's part of the duo Run the Jewels. He also records on his own, but he has invested in black and brown and, and minority businesses in Atlanta, where he's from, started with investing in a barbershop franchise, and he created a, kind of an entrepreneurial co-working hub, which led to a digital bank specifically for black, brown, and, and Latino entrepreneurs in Atlanta. And his investments are local economic development. It's the same thing that economic development organizations, chambers of commerce, And these types of business organizations whose job is to invest in, you know, the root and branch of our economies. And his money was earned from hip hop. And there are many, many examples of that. He is, you know, one of many. Now, the US is very different to Europe in many ways. And one of the ways in the
6: US, often a philanthropist can step in, do lots of projects that don't even need to work with with City Hall, that they do their thing. You know, We see an artist like Theaster Gates in Chicago, just independently minded, good at delivering projects. For these same people,
2: are they working with the system or are they kind of outside the system just doing their own thing, do you think? It's a bit of both. So, you know, Chance the Rapper is working with the system in Chicago. That's another American example. I wrote an article about how we need to reimagine hip-hop as local economic development. And let's break it down to what is local economic development? What literally is it? And it's a series of policies and investments and strategies and, and things that organizations do to either give money, time, space, or encouragement to people to create businesses. And often these systems are in place, ignore a lot of the cultural capital that can then be used to create more cultural capital in communities. And the world's most popular genre is hip hop. The genre that is in literally, and I say the word literally, literally every community in the world is hip hop. And it's also the, you know, it has a kind of low barrier to entry because you don't need a huge amount of training and skill to just start at the very, very, very low level. It's like being in a choir. And so I believe if we harness that value and we translate it and we say, okay, well, how can the mechanisms and the structure of hip hop, which have manifested into global superstars have manifested into changing popular culture in and of itself, how can we use that as a tool to invest in our communities? Because we're not really. And that's, not frustration that's me coming saying this is an incredible opportunity that we have in all our communities now.
3: when you're at heaven's gates
6: we're telling the lord you wouldn't even let a kid into some steadier shores that's a life they may never afford surely you would want to give your people chances that were better than yours no in the article you point out that there have been some barriers for some of these entrepreneurs in the sense that Often mainstream media or some civic leaders worry that you know, hip-hop is connected with violence. With the yeah. street is, is a bit too edgy for them to
2: be involved in. And you point out that this is you know no more true than in for any other kind of genre of music. Do you think this has been an issue for holding back some of the potential here? Very much so. Systemic and structural racism is one of the key issues. Whether it's implicit or explicit, the way that music and culture has been invested in Really, over the last, what, three or four hundred years, starting with patronage of royal families giving Mozart money to make a symphony. It's, things change very slowly, and certain people with certain tastes have made the decisions over a long period of time. And sometimes when you don't understand a genre of music, or you don't listen to a genre of music, you don't see the inherent social and cultural value. It's just an expression of a human being's lived experience.
3: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest
9: minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
8: To find out how we could help you,
9: contact us at ubs.com.
0: We're back with the curator, and of course, we need another highlight from Monocome culture. This year, we marked the release of the disco-tinged, effervescent pop album that feels good with its sparkly creator, Jessie Ware. Jessie joined Rob Bound in the studio for a lively chat, and they started, of course, by getting their compliments on each other's glowiness out of the way. That feels good. Do it
10: again. Do it-
6: Ladies and gentlemen, it's only bloody Jesse Ware on the Culture <laughs> Show. Lovely to meet you, Jesse. Thanks you you for coming too. in.
7: And we have lots of mutual friends. I that used to work at Monocle. Exactly. <laughs> I know.
6: It's a very small world. It's like the the, the Monocle Venn diagram is also like a Death Star that sucks you in <laughs> and sometimes pushes you out, but it's mostly a happy house. Hap, How long have you a been happy here? House. Since 2007. So I'm. You- so, um,
7: Part You're of, firmly in the coffin, like I, velvet coffin. <laughs> I am.
6: That is the piece of furniture I most resemble. Thank you for pointing <laughs> that out. This is a radio show. No one knows what I look like. It's fine. <laughs> You're
7: very handsome. <laughs> and you've got very um, glowy skin. So no one would know that you are in a radio... Uh, As previously
6: discussed, we, won- we didn't know what to wear today.
7: Well, why have you got a tan? Where have you been? Scotland. No, stop! I had to pay for Cyprus for this miniature glow.
6: Oh, you look wonderful. Well, no, it's going I mean, well.
7: you know, yours looks a bit better. Where were you, you in got Scotland?
6: like Edinburgh.
7: Oh, I love Edinburgh.
6: <laughs> honestly, honestly, I think it might be windburn, Jesse. That's what it is. Up
7: <laughs> Arthur's yeah seat.
6: Exactly. Arthur. Fine. Yeah, leave Arthur's seat yeah. out of it. <laughs> Talking of which, I feel your record that feels good. It's yes. kind of aimed at. It's grabbing people by a certain body part. With some of the tit- some of the song titles, such as you think- "Shake the Bottle," "Freak Me Now," "Genitalia," <laughs> "Short and Curlies. I was going to say "Scruff of the Neck." We could go further short down. I don't,
7: I don't know what kind of short and curlies you're talking about, Rob. <laughs> 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 I just made this so lowbrow. I'm, I'm so sorry. sorry. We're, uh, we're about to go there. Let's go there.
6: We've, start- we've sort of started. I know. Sorry. I think it was um, we got overexcited. Yeah, it's the lack of breakfast and the coffee.
7: Oh yeah, it could, we could go of, anywhere now. That's
6: kind of yeah. It's um. So how did you, how how soon into recording that the record did you choose such a vibey, grabbing people by the scruff of the neck title?
7: Um, well, as soon as we made that feels good, I knew I wanted it to be the album title. Yeah. It felt so kind of buoyant and and fun and also (laughs) the song was fun and so I wanted it to start the record but I also thought it's quite a funny old Title because it's got the exclamation, the double exclamation. Which <laughs> somebody on the internet, when I announced it, said that um, the only other person they think that they can remember that's got that is um, Shania Twain with "Man, I Feel Like a Woman," oh, that's and that knowledge. went quite well for them. So yeah. I feel like hopefully uh, the only way is up. There you go, this record. reeling
6: in the Grammys. Yeah, exactly. Like you'd probably an extension, put an extension on.
7: Yeah, exactly. It'll be, it'll be great.
6: <laughs> Just to hold them, so that. You call it that feels good.
7: Well, I it, you loved can't I keep appreci- stopping in the middle of the sentence. I appreciated sentence. how you did a pause. <laughs> I did appreciate that. I just think if I do that every time, people are gonna think I'm an absolute wanker. Are you not you're not a are we live? You are a Are say we live? live? Yeah. Oh I'm so sorry. We're well, not live, but we're also not, live? not the BBC. Okay, so. okay great.
6: <laughs> so you're okay? Okay, great. Wankers are fine. Perfect. Welcome. Always welcome. And this is is such a buoyant, bouncy it's such a vibey record. Thank you. It's been wonderful. It's been used for some pre-release soundtrack dance parties in SE3.
7: Okay, good.
6: And is it as fun to make a record that sounds that fun or is it a, is it a, is it a work of teeth grinding lunacy until it comes out and you're like this is wonderful. We, it, it sounds like this.
7: It is fun, but there was a lot of kind of frustration making this record because we were still part of a lockdown when I started making it. So we were making a lot of it over the internet. On Zoom, which I don't advise to anybody for anybody to do ever. Yeah. I never want to go back there. However, maybe that's what made things like Begin Again and That Feels Good happen because there was this need for escapism. Um, it was so fun working with James Ford again, Sean Goodzo, Danny, yeah. um, but and also meeting Stuart Price, who I hadn't worked with before, who's done records like Confessions on the Dance for it so was fun. Pet Shop
6: Boys, someone called Madonna, yes. I believe.
7: Yes. Um, yeah. Decent. Pedicle. Yeah, not bad. Oh, Fun. I think I was having fun.
6: Okay, um, so the I Zoom. Was. We'll have a look in the archive of the Zoom comments section. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, period. no,
7: look, the Zooms. I, I, I never want to make music like that ever again. But only part of the record was made like that. Mm. And I think, yeah, the the title is representative of of, of of how I was feeling and where I'm at. So yeah, it was yeah. it was good fun.
6: Nice, because if the lockdown was like a a funny chrysalis. This is the butterfly. This has gone bananas. It's such a, a brilliant sounding like record.
7: Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was. It was meant to be danced. Kind of and, enough of
6: this. Let's get out there. Yeah,
7: and yeah. I'm glad that you're you're putting it on, um, and 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 people are dancing. It's it's to be enjoyed. It's it's. I think my job as a musician artist is to entertain and um, make people feel good at Mm. the moment. That's my job. And I think that hopefully I've I've succeeded in that.
6: Is it kind of nice now you're in promo mode and you're talking about it. um, I, I guess it loses a sense of its reality in a certain way. It becomes kind of more abstract than actually making the thing and listening to it over and over again and perfecting it. Is it nice also to talk about such a vibey record? Is it is it a easier thing to talk about than a more confessional record or a more kind of quiet record? I wonder.
7: Yeah, totally. It's also really interesting when people tell you about the record and they go, "Well, you know, there's loads of parallels with," and you're like, "I didn't even think about it. I was just trying to make a beat and have a dance." Um, and try and see how filthy I could go with innuendo um but no it is really it's quite interesting seeing how I'm now understanding which uh, was unbeknownst to me when I was making it and putting it together kind of the parallels of some of the lyrics and Mm. all of that so that's but that's very much thanks to people intelligent people like you that Analyze it, or you know, because um, I wasn't doing anything. You're, you're the one
6: with the parallels, Jesse.
7: Oh well, <laughs> um, but, but no, it, it's uh, it is much more fun talking about a record that is just meant to be enjoyed, because it kind of is supposed to do what it says yeah. on the tin.
0: And now a highlight of my show, The Stack, where I speak to editors, publishers and designers from our industry, magazines, books, newspapers. I had a pleasure to speak with James Don, CEO of Barnes & Noble. He stopped by a Midori House to discuss what makes a good bookstore and the opening of new stores in 2023.
3: I think, sadly, there have been, well, a decade at least of, of decline at Barnes & Noble and sort of chain booksellers lost their way. At borders, the other big one, obviously went bankrupt and disappeared. Barnes and Noble more or less left as the only sort of substantial bookseller in the United States and it's always with every passing year closing a substantial number of shops and that's part of the function of having you know this this long history and and many of the buildings and and properties being extremely old so you're always going to be closing a reasonable number landlords want to redevelop the buildings just get too old Locations change their demographics and things and fall out of favour. Malls uh, disappear, and, and with it, the Barnes & Noble that's attached to it. So typically, Barnes & Noble will close 20-ish stores every year. The problem was they weren't opening any. Luckily, we have both changed the book-selling fortunes of the overall business, which then gives one the... I think it gives one the financial confidence, but it, what it really does is give you the psychological confidence to open new shops again and to do so at scale. Because if you want to grow, you've got to open up 20 to stand still. And then you need to open quite a lot more than that if if you want to grow in any substantial way, which we do. And that's to repair, I think, the damage of, of the last 10 uh, odd years. There is plenty of demand for bookshops. The bookshops that we have are doing extremely well. If you become a good bookseller, you will find yourself full of customers. And therefore, it makes sense to reopen shops in locations that have been closed and actually to explore new ones as well.
0: In terms of location, the United States is is quite spread out in the country or perhaps are you focused on the East Coast, West Coast? I'm quite curious, where are the Barnes and Nobles plans
3: for the U.S.? Well, both the existing estate is, in some ways, it's predictable. Um, mm. A lot on the East Coast, as you say, a lot on the West Coast. And then in the major metropolitan areas, you know, we have a lot in each of the big cities, really. Though also, if you knew where the, the real estate people, the property people were located and where they lived, you would suddenly understand why there seemed to be very great concentrations in the Atlanta area, for example, in Georgia, or in Dallas-Houston in Texas. We've got, in both of those places, large numbers of shops. But basically, we're in East Coast, West Coast and then a presence in literally every single state in the United States. Every single Um, one? Every single one. But also some sort of curious absences, Um, none in Washington, D.C. itself, plenty in Virginia, more or less deserted the metropolitan city centers other than New York City. So, again, getting back into those kind of locations seems extremely important.
0: Tell us about some of the changes you've implemented or still want to implement, because of course, it's a long process. I mean, there's so many shops. I mean, it's not, I'm sure it's not an easy task. But the shops itself, they changed. I mean, because, of course, it's a bookstore, but they were selling all sorts of things. You know, they were selling, you know, batteries, a lot of board games, toys, which I'm I'm sure some of them are still selling it. But there are more books, right?
3: That's perhaps the secret of the success, too. I think certainly becoming a, a good bookseller is a secret to selling more books if you are a bookseller. And sadly that mission I think had been diluted and the business itself had been run by retailers. And retailers in all other sectors have a, you know, simple proposal, which is we decide what is the best form of chemist or women's clothing or whatever it is that you do, and then you replicate that precisely and identically across all of your stores. That's what Zara does. That's what Boots does, Walgreens, Best Buy, Currys, whoever it might be, whatever you're selling, you decide on your retail model and you execute it precisely and identically across the nation, and that's what customers expect of you. The trouble with books is if you do that with books, you end up with some sort of identikit type bookstores, same books in the same place is really very boring trying to create the sort of everyman bookshop I think is a mistake and what we've done is decentralize very substantially leaving the responsibility for how they merchandise and which books they put where and how they replenish their books entirely in the hands of each of the bookselling teams in each store and then as you say really being quite rigorous around what are the other things that we sell alongside books and being sure that they complement books which is a simple enough test do they challenge the mind are they about writing and paper, that is a, a decent test. And if they don't pass that, we shouldn't have them in our store, which is why things like batteries have, <laughs> are no longer in there and, and we no longer sell sort of great mounds of drinking water and, and the other things that frankly also visually made our shops much, much less attractive. But really bookselling is around individual booksellers deciding what their customers want and presenting those books, which will be different in each store as attractively as they possibly can.
0: It's yeah, I, I love this idea that you're giving more freedoms to the stores to, you know, to showcase the books they want, because perhaps someone in Dallas might be different from someone in New York as well. Is that something that you've learned here in London with Don't Books as well? Because I also feel
3: that the Don't bookshops, they are quite personalized in a way as well. Yes, I, I, for uh, more than 20 years, 21, Mm -hmm. 22 years, um, I sat in Maribyrn High Street and sold books out of Don't Books. And that was my shop. And Mm -hmm. we opened up uh, new Don't Books here and there, largely because people in Maribyrn High Street got sort of slightly fed up and, and wanted to do their own thing. But each of those sort of crafted their own shop. And, and the one in Hampstead was different to the one in Holland Park. And, and so it went on. So, I, and you know, frankly, I had not a great deal of interest in, in what they were up to. I, I was only interested in what I was up to and my customers. And I took that ethos then first to Waterstones, and Waterstones effectively gone bankrupt. And by putting in that ethos and that book-selling philosophy, Waterston's began to succeed and, and in fact succeeded tremendously well. And now that we're doing it in the United States, we find that actually if you let booksellers get on with their trade, they are to varying degrees good at their craft. And where they're good, you do extremely well. And where you do badly, you, you need to go and get the neighboring bookseller to go and help. So you keep it local, keep it focused on the individual teams. And To the extent that we centrally do anything, it is to support the stores, sometimes just in very boring things like money to replace the light bulbs and Mm. fix the escalators or whatever else from the fabric of the store, but also just to challenge and articulate the principles of good bookselling and, and challenge the teams to meet those.
0: What's your relation at the moment with with the British operation? Of course, I mentioned Don't Books, but yes,
3: Waterstones as well, which is the largest UK chain. So we're talking about big numbers here as well, right? Yes. I mean, I spend now most of my time in, in the United States because Barnes & Noble is at an early stage of, mm. of change and evolution. And that's where... Focus is. Woodston's is effectively run by other people, but I still, you know, I have the title of, mm. of CEO there, so I have some responsibilities and keep a, a strong eye on it. But also, my heart still lies with Dawn Books.
0: And Monaco in 2023, we created a new show. Yes, we always do that. It's a travel show, it's called The Concierge. I chose a highlight of it. We shine a spotlight on a must visit destination. It's San Moritz, We sent Monaco's Stoneweb up the mountain to see what the region has to offer.
9: San Maritz is a year-round destination, whether escaping the summer city heat or trying out one of the world's most exclusive ski resorts. But if, like me, you don't have ski legs, this time of year is the perfect time for a cultural fix. Like most destinations in Switzerland, on the rails is the best way to travel. And if journeying in from Zurich, sit on the left for an hour-long view of Lake Zurich and always check if your service has a dining carriage before you go. We're now pulling up to Samaritz very shortly on the train. I'm delighted to say I'm sitting opposite Chiara Ramella, who is the executive editor of Monocle. Please tell us what we can expect culturally from Samaritz. The wonderful
11: fair Nomad has just wrapped up, but there's still plenty of things on the calendar to keep you entertained. Of course, should you want to come back for Nomad next year, the appointment still stands, but. There are plenty of galleries in town that have programming that extends for the whole season. Uh, Hauser & Wirth is very active here in Switzerland of course, it's home patch and in St Moritz they always have really interesting exhibitions. At the moment a particularly interesting initiative, they have an installation they call the Roth Bar which consists of a kind of a ramshackle collection of items that have been put into a functioning bar so you can pull up a chair and actually get yourself a little cocktail in the meantime. There's also a Vito Schnabel's gallery in town, it's always worth checking out. And then if you want to extend further into the valley, a new institution, relatively new institution, is the Museum Sush. This is a really fantastic place that used to be a brewery and a monastery and has been turned into quite an experimental institution with a fairly kind of concrete heavy architecture so it's got like a minimalist and edge to it as well and it's very focused on female artists and I think that it's really changed the landscape of the culture in the valley as a whole so do make your way up the valley and you won't regret the pilgrimage.
9: Well we're just approaching now it's looking cold outside let's grab our coats grab our bags and see what we can find. I am walking across the ice here on San Moritz Lake. You can probably hear the cars that are streaming around me. This is for the ice festival where 50 vintage cars race around the lake at high speed. It's the second time only they've done this festival. They've been wanting one here since 1985 and now... They're going to do it every single year it's packed there are thousands of spectators here people are buying cars people are watching them speed around the ice and it's very sunny and the ice is melting but i am told that it's at a safe 45 centimeters where the actual cars are so even though i'm standing in a puddle i think everyone is going to be okay for lunch, if the idea of catching a ski lift for fresh fish seems unusual, the newly opened stunning Langosteria restaurant is a new must-book-early dining experience in town, as is the new members-only straight-out-of-the-movie's Gucci lounge at the old favourite Paradiso. And in a few weeks, the Alpine Metropolis will also see an addition of a sixth five-star hotel.
12: I think it's really a little city where you don't miss anything. It's really comparable to big cities but it's on 28.7 square kilometers and surrounded by the beautiful nature and on 1856 meters and I think this is what it makes so special because we are offering very strong cultural events Yeah, the tradition of the The service quality that we have in our hotels, we have six five-star hotels in the valley and I think this is something unique comparable to big cities but still in the middle of nowhere. Actually, I prefer summer than winter because it's uh, quieter and colourful. We have all the colours from the lakes to the sun and blue of the skies and it's really, you can do many more things than you actually can do in winter. So, kite surfing, visiting old the events, the art galleries, doing um, yoga in a forest or at a lake shore. So, all these things, jumping into not freezing but a cold lake early in the morning. I think these are all things that are very special and you can see in summer. We have also very special. Jewels, all these things and all these undiscovered pearls I would suggest for summer. For the train
9: back down the mountain, try and seek out the glass ceiling carriage at the front of the train and maybe use the time to rebook for those summer months. From Samoretz, for Monocle, I'm Tom Webb.
0: And we had fun as well with a special series on the Monaco Daily. It was called Nerdy Pleasures, where we're looking at the most unusual pleasures from the Monaco staff. And we had this great one by Emma Searle on Lord of the Rings.
10: In a world of hobbits, wizards, and kings, I confess my nerdy obsession with Lord of the Rings. It all began with Frodo and his hairy-footed kin, who embarked on a weary quest to destroy the one all-powerful ring.
6: One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all.
11: And in the darkness...
10: From the rolling hills of the Shire to the lifeless pits of Mordor's volcanic fire, I know every twist, every turn, and every bend. Yep, you could say my obsession has no end. With elves, dwarves, and orcs roaming the land, I like to delve into Middle-earth popcorn in hand. But when my friends ask for Lord of the Rings film advice, I inform them that only the extended versions, the full 11 hours and 22 minutes, will suffice. Now, some may call it geeky that I've watched the trilogy more times than I can count, but let me tell you, from Bagan to Rivendell, every scene is paramount.
3: Welcome to Rivendell, Frodo Baggins.
10: I've analysed the folklore, the battles and the strife, and yes, I may have shed a tear or two, spoiler alert, when Boromir lost his life. My captain... I've donned elf ears, poured over posters, and so much more, my childhood bedroom was a shrine to Middle-earth decor. But why do I love it so much, you may ask? Perhaps it's the battles, the clash of steel, friendships, the epic task.
3: You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Where are we going?
10: But what truly sets this saga apart are, of course, the characters who truly capture our hearts. From Frodo the brave, burdened with fate, to Samwise the loyal, his steadfast mate.
1: I'm on your side, Mr. Frodo. I know, Sam. I know.
10: And of course, there's Gandalf the Grey, a bearded wizard with a twinkle in his eye. With his booming voice, he has a special ability to exude cheeky wisdom in every reply.
5: A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to.
10: But perhaps most famously, in the depths of Moria, a dark place without music, light, or the sound of birds, Gandalf faced down the evil Balrog, staff in hand, and uttered these four words. Oh, And let's not forget Gollum, cunning and depraved. With eyes like coals, he lurks within a dark and treacherous cave. By the power of the ring, he's forever doomed, for his obsession for the ring always looms. And then there's my favourite character, Legolas, the archer with his golden hair. A dashing elven prince, an agile warrior, light as air. But when Legolas opens his mouth, his manner strange and reserved, he utters bizarre words, his one-liners are simply absurd.
0: A red sun rises. Blood has been spilled this night.
3: This forest is old. Very old. Feel something. A slight
0: tingle in my fingers. I think it's affecting me. Something stirs in the east. A sleepless malice.
10: Yes, some may scoff at his words so absurd, but they're a source of joy for the nerds in this world. But do you know what, dear listeners, I've learned but to embrace my nerdy obsession with a smirk upon my face. For there you have it, my geeky confession laid out in the open, and yet my passion for Lord of the Rings remains unbroken. For it's in Tolkien's world that I've found my place, a nerdy love that's impossible to erase. For Monocle Radio, from Middle Earth, I'm Emma Sell.
0: And that's all. We've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you very much for listening. I'll see you in the new year.